Welcome to the Sum of It All Bad at Math podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And this season, we're exploring the book Bad at Math, Dismantling Harmful Beliefs that Hinder Equitable Mathematics Education by Lydia Gonzalez. I think one of these times, I'm actually going to say it right all the way through, Mark. Um, in any case, folks, transcripts to our podcast are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. This week, we're chatting about Chapter 5, Identity and Mathematics Education. And this chapter begins with a short vignette about a problem that was posed to students about whether it was a better deal to buy a weekly Metro Pass or buy a ticket for each ride. And the result was that the perceived right answer was based on a very specific experience and was not the answer that most students gave based on their lived experience. Mark, what did you think about this? Yeah, Audrey, you know, I've, I've run into the story a few times uh, over the years. And just like anything, when you read it another time, something else came to mind. Hmm. And as I reflected on the story, you know, I think it's interesting how when the, the educators that were engaged in this particular problem, right, the ones that were uh, supporting the students, they only realized that the students had a different way to think about it when they were asked to justify their alternative explanation. You know, like, it actually, even in the book, in the chapter right now, Audrey, the author says, in the retelling of this, the, the author states, upon closer examination, and I, I think that's a great play, phrase. That's how they found out about this upon closer examination. So this wasn't just like grading papers where you're just like, okay, these are the wrong answers. And then saying, okay, we're gonna have to reteach these kids because obviously they're getting to the wrong answer. And it makes me just reflect on how often we may be missing the brilliance of our students when their solution strategy doesn't match ours. But we have to be curious enough to, to find out how they came up with the particular solution and how cool that in this example, that these folks you know, stumbled upon this really interesting uh, additive way of thinking about the problem that was so contextual based on the lived experiences of these students. Yeah, I appreciate that, pulling that out, Mark. That's a really interesting point. Um, you know, and that brings us to like, what do we do about it, right? And the author poses that teachers must know their students well. You have to, um, that that's one of the two pieces. We need curriculum that's um, accurately reflects their culture and identities, but we also need, need teachers who, are, who really know their students well. So like when we think about like, how do you do that, right? Um, I'm super curious what things you think of as an elementary teacher. Um, as a secondary teacher, like it's overwhelming. I, it is literally overwhelming to think about knowing your students well. Um, like it's one thing to say, like, I know their names when they're not sitting in their seats. Like mm -hmm. that takes weeks of oh, like yeah. mental power to begin with. Right. Um, but how do you actually get to know them well? And so like, I'm thinking of a couple things that um, have become really helpful tools to that end. Like I'm thinking of the name tents that Sarah Vanderwerf uh, blogs oh, yeah. about yeah. Um, yeah. where students have a name tent help the teacher learn their name, but on the inside of it, each night they write a question or a fact or a answer a prompt and the teacher reads it and responds to it. And okay, I know that if you haven't tried this as a secondary teacher, that's sounding like super overwhelming now, but it's not. Like these are like, the boxes are small. Imagine your regular size piece of paper folded in half as a table tent. Like there's not 
a lot of space and it's not a huge response. It's just a little bit of insight and a response to say, I hear you, I see you. Yeah, and Audrey, I just have to have a shout out for that because I've seen you do this in professional learning mm -hmm. with adults. And um, I tell you, if I were back with students, it's something I would definitely try. Yeah, I exactly. It's super interesting. You know, I also think about home visits. Um, I remember as early in my career taking time to try to rotate through and visit stu students in their homes. And I did not visit every student. I'm just going to like that. That did not happen. Um, I probably got to 10 students a year, but I picked students who I was having the hardest time getting to know in class and saying, like, if I can't get to know you here, where can I get to know you? I, I think it's a great example, Audrey. We did something called a neighborhood walk at an elementary school I walked, walked at. And we had identified where the homes would be of certain students at the school. And we just did this neighborhood walk. And by the end, it felt like there were kids following us down the yeah. street, kind of cheering us along. And um, I have to say, I went into it with a little bit of trepidation because I just wasn't sure how it'd be received. It was amazing. And one of the most powerful things that I think I ever did in an elementary school. Yeah. It makes me just think sometimes we have to get beyond the walls of the school to do a lot of this learning. Yeah. Um, yeah. The book street data, which we've read in, uh, a recent season has other ideas for getting to know students, empathy interviews, collecting artifacts, et cetera. So I'm just thinking like, it's worth like, that's only like a page into the chapter. And I kind of like wanted to stop and have like a deep dive and conversation with all of the listeners and all the people yeah. who engage with us around this learning and say like, what are the things that you've done that really help you get to know your students? Because I need to crowdsource some of these. And I think we all need to get better at doing that. Do you have other ideas that you haven't shared yet? Wow, um, I, not a lot, Audrey, because I think I think I'm, I'd be so excited to go back into the classroom again and really just do things so much differently than I did before. The only thing that does come to mind is at the beginning of the school year, we did these things called biopoems where kids would um, include things that had to do with themselves. Um, but I look back on that now and it just seems like it was just, it was not sufficient. It was it was kind of token and, and it didn't go far enough. Um, I think... I think what I would do now is I would spend much more time trying to really feel like trying to allow kids to reflect on what they they felt about their assets that were more broad than school. I think, you know, when you think when I think back to elementary school, like all the years I was teaching, I think one of the, the questions we always would ask is, what is your favorite subject? You know, mm. <laughs> like something like that, that's just so limited to a school experience. So I think if I went back to do it now, it would be much more about knowing them as a whole person. What What is their life outside of school like? And what are the things about them in that life outside of school that they look at as their assets? It could be something around some arts activities or music activities or sports, or just even how they interact with their family and, and things that they, they believe is something about themselves that's an asset. And I think if I knew some more of those things about all of my students and the students knew about each other, I just feel like I, th I think we could have built even a stronger community in my classrooms. That's super interesting. I really appreciate that reflection, Mark, and thinking about that. You know, it also makes me wonder, because I know a lot of our listeners are not in the classroom. Some are, but some are leaders uh, that support teachers. Sure. And I'm definitely contemplating this from the lens of if you're leading others, how do you get to know them? And okay, so just to like... On my mind, there's a group of teachers I'm going to be working really in depth with over the course of the next year. How do I really get to know who they are? Mm, like the mm, table tent probably doesn't go far enough, right? Yeah, but if right. I show up at their houses, I'm going to look like a wackadoodle, <laughs> right? Or if I'm like, let me come yeah, eat don't dinner do that, with Audrey. you, like that's not going to be good. So like, 
where where are the ways what are the ways or what are the spaces that we get to know who these teachers are beyond mm-hmm. the school as well so that we can leverage leverage their best selves yeah. and the things that they find assets in themselves that are live beyond their their school identity to really help them um, become the best possible educator. So I'm super curious about that. People can tweet us back or send us emails. I love to have some advice on that. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, you know, uh, one of the things that came to mind, Audrey, when I was reading this chapter was, um, I don't know about you, but I my brain went right back to Soretta Hammond's book, mm-hmm. uh, Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain. And I just... Uh, just started making all kinds of connections with that. And I think it might be even cool for our listeners to know this whole idea of a book club that started on Zoom before we went into podcasting was, that was our first book, right? Um, It was, and it just such an amazing book to kick off uh, the idea of a book club. And uh, one of the things that uh, she mentions in this book is this idea of the brain seeking to minimize social threats and maximize opportunities to connect with others in community. And I mean, that's really what we're talking about here, right? What we want to have going on in mathematics and, you know, connected to this is this idea of stereotype threat. Um, When a student fears that they will act in ways that reinforce negative stereotypes about their group. Um, and, And as I was thinking about this, Audrey, and thinking about this chapter around identity, it seems like that uh, we have this more potential of doing harm in the content area of mathematics. Um, this is a subject that's already filled with uh, the trauma that's caused by cold calling mm-hmm. and forced sharing in front of the room. The whole idea of people remembering their experience of math of being sent up to the board. Um, and I'm just thinking about these practices take even a deeper level of harm to students who fear that they will act in ways that reinforce negative stereotypes about their group. So one thing that even ups the ante further in this whole idea of stereotype threat is that that teachers that have, uh, they they get a response from a student in some kind of a uh, whole class discussion and in they get somewhat of a less than enthusiastic response from a student and they may interpret that as defiance versus acknowledging the possibility of stereotype threat happening within that math class and and how my reaction as a teacher can continue to cause the situation to spiral resulting in the the students feeling more alienation and by that they're not going to have that ability to give their best in a situation these are these are super interesting ideas mark you know when when we've talked about stereotype threat you and I before like there's so much there that it, it can force you into acting in ways that you normally wouldn't act or, you know, um, inaction or inability to act. Um, and so it's super curious to think about, like, how do we undo a stereotype threat? Like, how do we, like, mitigate it? We know it's there. Like, we know it exists. So what do right. we do about it? Like, mm-hmm. how do we undo, like, first of all, the stereotypes that exist? Like, how do we start to combat those in our classes so that students can recognize that those are just stereotypes? Um, and then how do we create these spaces without fear for students? I'm I'm most struck by this idea, Mark, that, you know, when we read Peter Lillardell's book about thinking classrooms, he talks in there about this idea of like, there are so many messages we communicate to students about what we think, what they think it means to be a math student. 
that he was curious about how he like took all of those away to figure out how you actually communicate what we really want math students to do, which is to think, right? And so it makes me think similarly, like what are all the ways that we are perpetuating an opportunity for stereotype threat to live in our classes and in our spaces? And how do we kind of remove all of those things so that we can see like how do like we can create an environment where people feel comfortable and safe to interact. And I think some of that, some of that has to go back to, um, as you were describing, like the responses that we give each other, like when a teacher doesn't look a student or looks at a student or, you know, says yeah. mm, interesting or huh, mm-hmm. what does someone else right. think? Like all those things we do communicate to a student, um, different messages about what a teacher may or may not believe they're capable of and reinforce stereotypes. So I'm super curious about this. I think it takes probably a lot of effort in, you know, videotaping ourselves and really like thinking about the individual interactions we have and how we undo that and rethink about it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Audrey, there's a quote on page, uh, starts on page 90 into 91 that I think is is important to, to consider in this, this whole idea of Math identity more than any other variable predicted success in secondary school mathematics. So, you know, this whole chapter's around identity in mathematics education. And it wasn't it interesting how, like, even when they controlled for other variables like socioeconomic status and all these other variables, that math identity was was something that predicted success. Did you find that surprising as well? It was, I thought it was extremely interesting. Um... You know, I think I think one of the interesting things around math identity is that there seems to be this prevailing notion that it develops early. And I've heard even by like first or second grade, like that students have a mathematical identity, that they hold a belief about themselves and their ability to do math and see math in their lives. Right. And I I, I think we can see that. I don't disagree with that. I've seen it in my own children. I've seen it in other children. Um, but I do think that we tack onto that, unfortunately, a notion that that mathematical identity is static, that students who do not see themselves as uh, with a positive mathematical identity, we have this like collective belief that they will continue to not see themselves. And I think one of the things I've seen is people are like, yeah, yeah, um, okay, math identity doesn't stay constant but they talk about all the places that people lose a positive math identity. Like I was fine with math until I reached fractions. I was fine with math until I got to algebra, fill in the blank, geometry, trig, calculus, right? Like they talk about all these places where they have the falling out and they no longer have a positive identity Mm. with mathematics. So I think people like understand like underneath the surface that it's not static. Like it's something that's fragile and can be changed. Right. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that we, often think about all the times when the reverse is possible, that we can engineer learning experiences and environments that allow students to fall into a positive math identity, that allow themselves to see themselves or reimagine themselves as doers of mathematics, that we actually have the ability to create that environment and those experiences so that people can say, I didn't think of my math myself as a math person. Right, right. I didn't have a positive math identity until... I met this teacher. I did this thing in fifth grade. I had this experience in seventh grade, right? Like that's what I would love to hear our stories. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like filled with instead of the other way around. Yeah, it's all in the framing. I really like how you you switch that framing, Audrey. And I I think that 
Uh, a lot of us as adults have have even that, had that happen post-secondary in terms of sure. how we look at ourselves around mathematics. I, I think, you know, you're also making me think, I think sometimes in the elementary space, in the early ed space, we get really excited and emphatic, like, you know, this is the time that we have to make sure that this happens with students, that they they form this identity. But I think sometimes we have to be careful that we create this narrative that if it doesn't happen, like we missed our chance. And so I, I really like how you're making that point. Um, you know, in the something else that we should probably talk about a little bit here, Audrey, is that, you know, back when we were reading street data, there was a quote that sticks with me that I think will get us into another uh, point here. And remember in street data when the authors made that point around how sometimes with students, the reason that they're not being successful, it's not because the content is too, is too hard. It's actually because it's too easy. Um, and that, that connection I made to that was based on this quote on page 91 in the current book that we're reading. And it says, schools with more access to academic enrichment tend to serve Black, Black and Latinx students better than those with a focus on remediation. So when I started thinking about this, Audrey, um, it really made me think about like what causes a school or a district to, to get to that tipping point where they look at their students as students that are going to be enriched and not remediated. Um, how do they reach that tipping point? Um, what causes them to say to themselves, like, we're not gonna, we're gonna put aside that deficit um, thinking and we're going to think about how we might build on the assets of our students and, and enrich them. Um, because I think if we're considering how that happens, I think that's really huge because I think a lot of schools get stuck in that other side of things of, of not being able to push past the remediation, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know what this is making me think of when you bring this up, Mark? It's a really interesting idea. It makes me think of this the idea of um, being a warm demander that comes out of several different folks who have shared that idea, including Zretta Hammond, who you've already mentioned today. Mm -hmm. um, this idea that we can look at students and say, I believe in you, you're capable, but you're gonna do this, right? And so when when you when we look at our students and we see gaps, and that's all we see is the gaps and the inabilities, we forget that they are very capable, wonderful children full of many assets. And that if instead we focused on the encouragement of you are capable and can do this, and I'm here to help you, mm -hmm. um, that gap is not an end of your story as a mathematician, right? Like, right, right. Um, and I think part of that is also continuing to remind people that the stories of mathematicians are not gapless. Um, nobody has that kind of experience. And so mm -hmm. um, making that part of what it, uh, the identity means to be a mathematician and, and to identify with a positive math identity does not mean there are no gaps or holes, but it means that there, that we see ourselves as being able to do this and, and experience it in a positive way, um, which connects a little bit to this next section in the text, which is on identity and story problems. And it begins with a discussion around dehumanizing mathematics, uh, which for those not familiar with it, is this idea that education does not value students' histories, cultures, and experiences. And so, um, you know, we've read other books that talk about rehumanizing mathematics, mm -hmm. uh, including one in season two um, for students with disabilities um, and others. But how do we do that, right? Um, and so there was this quote that came on the page 92 that says, the idea that identity is not a necessary condition 
uh, excuse me, consideration in the teaching of mathematics serves to obscure the reality that identity is in fact being attended to, though not for all students. And this reminds me of a, something Zaretta Hammonds actually said just recently, this last month in a conference, she said, all instruction is culturally responsive, but whose culture is being responded to? And I think that's the, that's the misunderstanding we have, right? Is that we look at these problems, these word problems, um, some of them are atrocious. They're all atrocious. I'm just gonna say they're atrocious. Um, and we forget that they are all attending to someone's culture. It's just a question of, is it attending to the culture of your students and the people who are sitting in the room with you? Yeah, for sure, Audrey. And uh, I, I am going to share one of the <laughs> particularly awful examples that the okay. authors and, and the authors are giving. The author is giving this as, a, as an awful example. And uh, it goes like this. Craig is saving to buy a vacation home. He inherits some money from a wealthy uncle then combines this with the $22,000 he has already saved and doubles the total in a lucky investment. He ends up with $134,000, just enough to buy a cabin on the lake. How much did he inherit? Um, yeah, that's a pretty awful one. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I'm not sure that's uh, a mythical average <laughs> problem either. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, so that, you know, but you know, so the author gives us some really particularly bad examples of, uh, of problems that uh, many people will not be able to connect to as students. Um, and it did make me think of this. Okay, so these uh, examples are pretty awful. I think yeah. we, you and I can at least agree on that. Um, but even if we clean them up a little bit, how about, you know, we, we? it's not the wealthy uncle, it's not this whole big investment. And I think we still can kind of like, step into the area of overly having to do with consumerism mm -hmm. and sort of this this value of money being the the main priority and i think we also like i think we mentioned a little bit before we can we can get into the zone of stereotypes too mm -hmm. um you know one thing that uh, the author states which i think is really uh honest in in this work that's pretty messy is she says no curriculum can accurately and effectively reflect all cultures and identities often attempts to do so become superficial and over-rely on stereotypes. Uh, one example I can think of in elementary schools, there was there was a trend for a while that um, to use rap music to do multiplication facts. Mm. And, um, you know, that versus what you were talking about earlier of, of knowing your students well and how that can be something that's leveraged versus sort of something that's token that we're going to, they're making an assumption about a group of students and and perhaps use a stereotype to push something in, right? Yeah. You know, I, I started my teaching career in, Los, in the LA area and being in California and relatively close to the beach, I made an assumption that all my students had been to the beach and had seen the water and had mm -hmm. seen the ocean. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first time we were doing a task that involved something about being at the beach. And my kids just looked at me and they were like, miss, we've, <laughs> been. And I was like, um, so like, I think, I think it's good intentions or not. Like I'm, I'm right, doubtful yeah. that there's good intentions behind the rich uncle and the yacht. Uh, <laughs> yeah, vacation home. Maybe there, maybe there are. Um, uh -huh. But in like, I think there are times when we take spaces and we say, um, we just have, we generalize the experience of ourselves as if that is the experience of everyone in the room that we're working with. Yeah. And I like listening to rap music. So my students are going to like listening to the rap music or I've been to the beach. So my students are going to like going to the beach. Um, and that's beyond even like associating a specific stereotype with a specific group of people, but just saying like my lived experience must be yeah. 
common with everyone else, right? Yeah. Um, it was so interesting to me because I there's a dear friend who was rewriting a word problem and she was calling out some inequities in the word problem. And um, she was like, you know what we need to do? These students are predominantly Latino. They know what burritos are. So I'm going to rewrite it as a burrito problem um, because when we talk about burritos, like I'm going to ask the kids, they're all going to know what those are in this classroom. Southern California burritos are, are well known uh, <laughs> eat uh, something you eat. Right. Um, but the problem required students to cut the burrito into thirds and none of the students were coming up with the answer. This is very much like this Metro problem we talked about at the very beginning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she never got it past like why they were having problems with this. And I was like, I don't know about you, but we cut burritos in half in my family, but we do not cut them into thirds because that middle piece, it oozes out of both ends. Like no <laughs> child, right? Like people who eat burritos regularly know that nobody wants a middle piece. It's no longer a burrito. It is tortilla with ooze coming out both sides. Yeah, yeah. So like, I think it's super interesting for us to keep bumping up against those spaces and acknowledging like, got that wrong. Let's try it again. Yeah. You're so right, students. We would have halves. And someone wouldn't get enough because there's, you know, nobody's getting the third piece of burrito that's that middle piece. So um, I appreciate the author's space about saying this is messy and difficult work um, and pushing us into that. Yeah, I mean, just these contexts have to work. I mean, they have to they have to work. And that burrito example is just such a good one. Um, you know, the author is just so honest and, and realistic about this work that we're talking about with story problems. Uh, she says, admittedly, this is a difficult process and requires a lot of work on the teacher's part. One, one thing that did jump into my head, Audrey, was uh, back from one of our previous seasons with mathematizing literature. Do you remember that example of when the educator walked into the corner store that was near the school that, that they knew that most, if not all of their students had been in that store? And remember how that educator actually filmed uh, a video in the store as they were walking like a first person perspective, walking through mm -hmm. the store. And then they brought that video into the classroom and used it as an authentic context that again, most or all of their students could relate to as they engage in mathematics. Um, boy, that, that example has really stuck with me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think there's a lot of power to that too. And so yesterday, even I was with a group of people and they were talking about designing professional learning experiences for a group of teachers. And I just, I was like, well, I thought of that very similar thing, Mark. And I was like, well, what if we spent an hour and we just took a walk off of the campus and into the neighborhood, the walkability part of the neighborhood, right? Yeah, yeah. And just look for all of the places where you see in this context, math, right? Like take videos of it, take pictures, and then let's, what if we came back and thought about how we could use this in our classes? And people just looked at me like, can we do that? And it's like, <laughs> we are so limited by know, our own right? beliefs about what <laughs> our learning as educators can be like, right? And it's like, there is power in the community. There is so much wealth of knowledge there. We just literally have to walk off of the campus to find it sometimes. Yeah, like we're asking everybody in some ways to leave everything from their neighborhood when they come onto the campus we're yeah. ready to do school now but i love how you pulled that idea off the page and into a conversation yesterday that's so yeah. cool audrey yeah so there's one more idea as we're wrapping up and running out of time in this episode that i'd love to bring into conversation um and on page 93 they talk about this word honor which is one of my favorite words it says mm -hmm. um to support students' achievement, we must attend to issues of identity in the classroom by centering the curriculum on their experiences. This means developing curriculum and supporting materials that honor the cultures and histories 
of the students in our classrooms and using relevant materials that exist. And I just, I, I just, that just, I highlighted it. I wrote in the margin, like, mm -hmm. yes, we need to figure out how to do that. And the author offers an example around flags that I think it's probably pretty problematic. Um, and I don't need to get super far into it, but I just think that the participation in that is narrow. And sometimes when we design these ideas, um, we design them again for a narrow audience, because in this case, it's about people who are aware of or could find out and trace their ancestry to a certain country, right? Um, and so that's that's like some people, that's not all people, right? Yeah, I, I, I had the same reaction, Audrey. I, th I think it could be traumatic for some students depending on their ancestry. And um, I, I, think, I think you said it well, the participation potential is narrow and at its worst could be traumatic. So yeah. I, I would agree with you. Yeah, and maybe that's not from where the author lives and works. And so like, we just have to acknowledge like context matters, right? In our yeah. neighborhoods, that would potentially be pretty traumatic. So all that said though, last year, you and I were at um, the CMC South Conference in Palm yep. Springs, mm -hmm. and we went to a, a keynote by Edmund Harris. And he started by sharing images of artifacts of baskets and paintings and different things from indigenous peoples who were who live in the area where the conference was taking place. And it was the most provocative and thoughtful version of a land acknowledgement that I had experienced in a long time. Um, but it really sparked an idea that relates back to this word of honoring and honoring students. And Mark, you took that idea and ran with it. Can you share with our listeners just a little bit about how you took that idea into a space to help uh, honor students and their cultures? Yeah, sure, Audrey. I had the privilege of uh, actually working on, on a reservation where, where there was an after-school program in place. And as I was doing professional learning around mathematics, as I was getting to my last session, um, I realized, wow, this is a great opportunity to think about how we could leverage the, the, the knowledge uh, that these indigenous families and students had into mathematics. And so I had an email conversation with one of the leaders at the after school program. And I said, hey, I have an idea. Is there a way you could take some photos for me of some artifacts? that are culturally relevant to these students um, because I'd let, that, that would have potential that might have some mathematics we could dig into, just like some notice and wonder and things like that. And so it was really cool. She sent me some uh, photographs and there were a couple of things that just jumped out at me right away. Some things around baskets again, some things around circles. And um, I, I came up with a few activities that I did with the adults the next time I came out there and just said that, here are some ideas and I'm really excited to hear about more ideas. And so um, it was pretty cool. And the person that was the leader out there was pretty excited about um, that being part of the work, even though we originally hadn't intended for that to be part of the work. So um, I, I don't think it was perfect and I want to keep getting better at it, but um, I, I'm encouraged by thinking about like really trying to always think about who are the students that I'm serving this particular circumstance and how can we leverage the assets and strengths and, uh, and culture of that community? Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I, I think a couple of the things I appreciate the most about that is that you recognized you didn't know what those artifacts would be. And instead of doing a potentially dangerous Google search, right, that you right. asked. Um, and so, like, I think that's one space that we can all learn from is that we can ask students and families and other adult community members and say, tell me, 
What are the artifacts? What are the important things? What are the values that if we wove them into our class, we would be honoring the students and their cultures? Um, and then the second thing I really appreciate, Mark, about that is this idea of like, um, we can model for people what that looks like, even if that's not our own culture or background, that we can say like, here are some things that we might ask or we might say that could help you try this on in other spaces too. So I leave all of that to say like, Finding the ways that we honor our students is the work of this chapter, I think, um, that it's all wrapped up in getting to know our students, their identities, and remembering that the identities are not static in math, um, that our work can help students feel that they belong in our mathematician, or it can do the opposite. And it's going to do one or the other. It's not, um, it's not a neutral game. It's something that's going to either build upon positive experiences or it's going to tear it apart. And so we have, a, we have a responsibility to keep working at this and getting better at this. And so I appreciate you taking that risk and trying that on and just encourage our listeners to continue to take those risks and try it on too. Yeah, thanks, Andre. Appreciate that. Thanks for joining us for this episode. In our next episode, we will chat about chapter six, school mathematics. And we will continue to discuss how we dismantle harmful beliefs that hinder equitable mathematics education. Until then, best wishes on rewriting the story of math.